93 by Victor Hugo, Part 3, Book 4, Chapters 1 through 8. That evening, the mother, whom we have seen wandering almost at random, had been walking all day. All her days were the same. She walked straight ahead and never stopped. Her exhausted sleep, wherever she could find a place to lie down, was no more rest than the morsels she ate here and there as birds forage were food. She ate and slept just enough to prevent herself from falling dead. She had spent the previous night in an abandoned barn. Civil wars make many such empty buildings. In a deserted field she had found four walls, an open door, and a little straw beneath the remains of a roof. And she had lain down on the straw and under the roof, feeling rats slip past through the straw, and watching the stars rise through the holes in the roof. She had slept a few hours, then awakened in the middle of the night and begun walking again in order to cover as much distance as possible before the heat of the day. For anyone traveling on foot in summer, midnight is more clement than noon. She was doing her best to follow the route that had been summarily indicated to her by the peasant of Vautort. She had been heading westward as well as she could. If anyone had been near her, he would have heard her murmuring constantly, the Torg. Except for the names of her three children, this was now almost the only word she knew. Thoughts went through her mind as she walked along. She thought of the adventures she had gone through, of everything she had suffered and accepted, of the encounters, the indignities, the conditions laid down, the bargains proposed and submitted to, sometimes for shelter, sometimes for a piece of bread, sometimes merely for information as to how to find her way. A destitute woman is more unfortunate than a destitute man because she is an instrument of pleasure. Her wanderings were horrible, but nothing mattered to her, provided she found her children. Her first encounter that day had been a village on the road. Dawn was just appearing. Everything was still bathed in the gloom of the night, and yet a few doors along the main street of the village were already ajar, and curious faces were looking out from the windows. The inhabitants had the agitation of a disturbed beehive. This was because of a sound of wheels and metal that had been heard. On the square in front of the church, a group of dumbfounded people were watching something moving along the road, coming down toward the village from the top of a hill. It was a wagon drawn by five horses harnessed with chains. On the wagon one could see what seemed to be a pile of long beams, in the middle of which there was something shapeless. It was covered with a large piece of canvas which looked like a shroud. Ten horsemen rode in front of the wagon, and ten others behind. They wore three-cornered hats, and above their shoulders rose what appeared to be the points of drawn sabers. This whole procession was moving slowly standing out sharply and darkly against the horizon. The wagon looked black, the horses looked black, the riders looked black. Behind them was the pale glow of dawn. They entered the village and moved toward the square. The daylight had grown a little brighter while the wagon was coming down the hill, and the procession could now be clearly seen. It was like a procession of shadows, for not one word came from it. The horsemen were gendarmes. They were indeed carrying drawn sabers. The canvas cover was black. The wretched, wandering mother entered the village from the other direction and went up to the crowd of peasants just as the wagon and the gendarmes were arriving. In that crowd, voices were whispering questions and answers. What's that? It's the guillotine going by. Where's it coming from? Fougere. Where is it going? I don't know. I've heard it's going to a castle near Parigny. Parigny? I don't care where it goes, as long as it doesn't stop here. The big wagon, with its load veiled by a kind of shroud, the horses, the gendarmes, the sound of the chains, the silence of the men, the dim early morning light, 
all these things formed a spectral scene. The group crossed the square and left the village. The village lay in a hollow between two hills. A quarter of an hour later, the peasants, who had remained as though petrified, saw the procession reappear at the top of the hill to the west. The big wheels jolted along the ruts, the chains of the harness jingled in the morning wind, and the sabers glittered. The sun was rising. The road turned, and everything disappeared. It was the very moment when Georgette awoke in the library beside her sleeping brothers and said good morning to her pink feet. The mother had watched that dark thing pass, but she had neither understood nor tried to understand, for she had another vision before her eyes, her children lost in the darkness. She too left the village a short time after the procession which had just passed, and followed the same road, some distance behind the second squad of gendarmes. Suddenly the word guillotine recurred to her. Guillotine, she thought. That savage, Michel Flechard, did not know what it was, but an instinct warned her. She shuddered without knowing why. It seemed horrible to her to walk behind that thing, so she turned off the road to her left and began walking under the trees of the Fougere forest. After wandering for some time, she saw a steeple and some rooftops. It was one of the villages on the edge of the forest. She went toward it. She was hungry. This village was one of those in which the Republicans had established military posts. She went to the square in front of the town hall. In this village, too, there was agitation and anxiety. There was a crowd in front of the steps that led up to the entrance of the town hall. On these steps could be seen a man escorted by soldiers and holding a big poster in his hand. To his right was a drummer, and to his left was a bill sticker with a jar of paste and a brush. On the balcony over the door stood the mayor, wearing a tricolored sash with his peasant clothes. The man with the poster was a public crier. He was wearing his shoulder belt with a little satchel hanging from it. This indicated that he was going from village to village and had something to announce all over the region. When Michel Flechard walked up, he had just unfolded his poster and was beginning to read it. He said loudly, French Republic, one and indivisible. The drummer beat a roll on his drum. A kind of wave ran through the crowd. Some of the people took off their bonnets, others pulled their hats down more tightly on their heads. In those days, and in that region, political opinions were nearly always indicated by headdress. Hats were royalists, bonnets were republican. The confused murmur of voices ceased. The people listened. The crier read, By virtue of the orders given and the powers delegated to us by the Committee of Public Safety, there was a second roll on the drum. The crier went on. And in execution of the decree of the National Convention, which makes outlaws of all rebels taken with weapons in their hands, and inflicts capital punishment on anyone who gives them sanctuary or helps them to escape. A peasant softly asked, What's capital punishment? The man beside him answered, I don't know. The crier shook his poster. In accordance with Article 17 of the Law of April 30th, which gives all power to delegates and subdelegates against the rebels, the individuals designated by the following names and nicknames are hereby declared to be outlaws. The whole crowd listened intently. The crier's voice became thunderous. He said, Lantanac, a brigand. That's our lord murmured a peasant. And this whisper went through the crowd. It's our lord. The crier went on. Lantanac, formerly a marquis, now a brigand. Imanus, a brigand. Two peasants looked at each other out of the corners of their eyes. That's Gouge le Bruant. Yes, it's Brise Bleu. The crier continued reading the list. Grand Franqueur, a brigand. The crowd murmured. He's a priest. Yes, that's the Abbe Termo. 
Yes, he's a parish priest somewhere near the Chapelle woods. He's also a brigand, said a man wearing a bonnet. The crier read, Bois Nouveau, a brigand. The two Picambois brothers, brigands. Huzard, a brigand. That's Monsieur de Caelin, said a peasant. Panier, a brigand. That's Monsieur Seyfer. Place Net, a brigand. That's Monsieur Jamois. The crier went on reading without noticing these comments. Guinoiseau, a brigand. Chatenay, known as Roby, a brigand. A peasant whispered, Guinoiseau is the same as Le Blonde. Chatenay is from Saint-Ouen. Juanard, a brigand, said the crier. And these remarks could be heard among the crowd. He's from Rouillet. Yes, that's Branche d'Or. His brother was killed in the attack on Pontorson. Yes, Juanard Malonier. A handsome young man of nineteen. Attention, said the crier. Here's the end of the list. Belvinia, a brigand. La Musette, a brigand. Sabratout, a brigand. Brandamour, a brigand. A young man nudged a girl with his elbow. She smiled. The crier continued. Chantanivert, a brigand. Le Chat, a brigand. A peasant said, That's Moulard. Taboos, a brigand. A peasant said, That's Gaufre. There are two Gaufres, added a woman. They're both good men, muttered a royalist. The crier shook the poster, and the drummer beat his drum. The crier continued reading. The above-named men will be put to death wherever they may be captured, as soon as their identity has been established. The crowd stirred. The crier went on. Anyone who gives them sanctuary or helps them to escape will be brought before a court-martial and put to death. Signed, the silence deepened. Signed, the delegate of the Committee of Public Safety, Simordan. A priest, said a peasant. He used to be the parish priest of Parigny, said another. A townsman added, Termot and Simordan, a white priest and a blue priest. They're both black, said another townsman. The mayor, who was on the balcony, lifted his hat and cried out, Long live the Republic! A roll on the drum announced that the crier had not finished. He made a gesture with his hand. Attention, he said. Here are the last four lines of the government's poster. They're signed by the leader of the expeditionary force of the Côte du Nord, Major Gauvin. Listen, said the voices of the crowd. And the crier read, Under penalty of death, everyone fell silent. It is forbidden, in execution of the above order, to give aid or succor to the nineteen above-named rebels, who are now besieged and surrounded in the Torg. What? said a voice. It was a woman's voice. It was the mother's voice. Michelle Flechard had mingled with the crowd. She had listened to nothing, but one can hear without listening. She had heard the words, the Torg. She looked up. What? she repeated. The Torg? People stared at her. She seemed distraught. She was in rags. Voices murmured. She looks like a brigand. A peasant woman who was carrying some buckwheat cakes in a basket came over to her and said softly, Be quiet. Michelle Flechard looked at this woman in stupefaction. Again, she understood nothing. That name, the Torg, had passed like a flash of lightning, and now it was dark again. Didn't she have a right to ask questions? Why were they all looking at her like that? Meanwhile, the drummer had beat his drum one last time. The bill sticker had put up the poster. The mayor had gone inside the town hall. The crier had gone off toward some other village, and the crowd was dispersing. A group of people had remained in front of the poster. 
Michelle Fleshard went up to them. They were discussing the names of the men who had been declared outlaws. There were peasants and townspeople, in other words, whites and blues. A peasant was saying, Just the same, they don't have everybody. Nineteen are only nineteen. They don't have Priou or Benjamin Moulin or Goupil from the parish of Andouillet. Or L'Oriol from Montjean, said another. Others added, Or Bristigny, or Francois Dudouet. Yes, he's from Laval. Or Ouet from Lani Villiers. Or Grégy, or Pilon, or Filleul, or Menisson, or Guéret, or the three Logeret brothers. Or Monsieur Le Chandelier de Pierreville. Fools! said a stern, white-haired old man. If they have Lantanac, they have everything. They don't have him yet, murmured a young man. The old man said, If Lantanac is captured, the soul is captured. If Lantanac is killed, Vendée is dead. Who is this Lantanac? a townsman asked. A townsman answered, He's a former nobleman. And another one said, He's one of those who shoot women. Michelle Fleshard heard this. That's true, she said. The others turned around. And she added, It's true, because he shot me. These were strange words. It was as though a living woman had said she was dead. The others began to examine her, a little suspiciously. She was indeed alarming to see, starting at every sound, bewildered, quivering, with a kind of wild anxiety, and so frightened that she was frightening. In a woman's despair there is something weak which is terrible. It is as though one were seeing a person hanging at the end of fate. But peasants do not make such fine observations. One of them grumbled, she might very well be a spy. The woman who had already spoken to her said to her softly, Keep quiet and go away. Michel Flechard replied, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm looking for my children. The woman looked at those who were looking at Michel Flechard, put her finger to her forehead, winked her eye, and said, She's simple minded. Then she took her aside and gave her a buckwheat cake. Michel Flechard avidly bit into it without thanking her. Yes, said one of the peasants, she eats like a wild animal, so she must be simple-minded. And the rest of the crowd dispersed. They all went away, one after another. When Michel Flechard had eaten, she said to the peasant woman, Good, I've eaten. Now, where's the torg? "'You're starting that again?' cried the woman. "'I must go to the Torg. Tell me how to get there.' "'Never. Why should you want to get killed? Anyway, I don't know. Are you really out of your mind? Listen, poor woman, you look tired. Would you like to rest in my house?' "'I don't rest,' said the mother. "'Your feet are all torn and bleeding,' murmured the peasant woman." "'My children have been stolen,' said Michel Flechard. "'A little girl and two little boys. "'I've come from the hut in the forest. "'You can ask Telmark the beggar about me, "'and the man I met in the field back there. "'It was the beggar who cured me. "'He said I had something broken. "'Those are all things that really happened. "'There's Sergeant Radu, too. "'You can ask him. He'll tell you. "'He was the one who found us in the woods.' Three. I've got three children. The oldest one's name is René Jean. I can prove all that. The other boy's name is Groelan, and the little girl's name is Georgette. My husband is dead. They killed him. He was a farmer at Sisquanyard. You look like a good woman. Tell me how to get to the Torg. I'm not out of my mind. I'm a mother. I've lost my children. I'm looking for them. That's all. I don't know exactly where I've come from. Last night I slept on straw in a barn. 
the Torg. That's where I'm going. I'm not a thief. You can see I'm telling the truth. People ought to help me find my children. I'm not from around here. I was shot, but I don't know where. The peasant woman shook her head and said, Listen, when there's a revolution going on, you mustn't say things that people don't understand. It can get you arrested. But the Torg, cried the mother. Madam, for the love of the Christ child and the blessed Virgin of heaven, please, madam, I beg you, I beseech you, tell me how to get to the Torg. The peasant woman became angry. I don't know. And even if I did know, I wouldn't tell you. Those are bad places. No one goes there. I'm going there, said the mother. And she began walking again. The peasant woman watched her moving away and muttered, Even so, she has to eat. She ran after Michelle Flechard and put a buckwheat cake in her hand. This is for your supper. Michelle Flechard took it without answering or turning her head and continued walking. She left the village. As she was passing the last houses, she met three ragged, barefoot little children coming from the opposite direction. She went up to them and said, These are two girls and a boy. And seeing that they were looking at her buckwheat cake, she gave it to them. They took it and were frightened. She plunged into the forest. Before dawn had appeared that morning, the following events had taken place in the indistinct darkness of the forest, on the road between Javanet and Lecousse. All the roads in Le Bocage are deeply sunken, and this is particularly true of the one between Javanet and Parigny by way of Lecousse. Moreover, it is winding. It is a ravine rather than a road. It comes from Vitre and had the honor of jolting Madame de Sévigné's carriage. It is as though walled in on either side by hedges. There could be no better place for an ambush. That morning, an hour before Michel Flechard arrived from another point of the forest, at that first village where she had seen the sepulchral apparition of the wagon escorted by gendarmes, there were invisible men scattered through the thickets which the road from Javanet crosses before it leaves the bridge over the Quenon. The branches hid everything. These men were peasants, and they all wore Grigot, a kind of fur tunic worn by the kings of Brittany in the 6th century and by the peasants in the 18th. These men were armed, some with muskets, others with axes. Those with axes had just prepared, in a clearing, a pile of dry faggots and logs which was now ready to be ignited. Those with muskets were grouped on either side of the road, waiting. Anyone who could have seen through the leaves would have seen fingers on triggers and gun muzzles pointing through the loopholes formed by crossing branches. Those men were on the watch. All their guns converged on the road, which the first glow of dawn was gradually brightening. In this dim light, voices conversed softly. Are you sure? Well, that's what they say. It's going to pass by? They say it's in this region. It mustn't get out. It must be burned. We've come from three villages to do it. Yes, but what about the escort? We'll kill them. But is it going to pass on this road? So they say. Then it must be coming from Vitre. Why not? But they said it was coming from Fougere. Whether it comes from Fougere or Vitre, it comes from the devil. Yes. And it must go back to him. Yes. Then it's going to Parigny? So it seems. It won't get there. No. No, no, no. Listen. It had become advisable to be silent, for daylight was beginning to appear. Suddenly the men lying in ambush held their breath. They had just heard a sound of wheels and horses. They looked through the branches and vaguely distinguished on the sunken road a long wagon, an escort of men on horseback, and something on the wagon, 
which was coming toward them. "'There it is,' said the man, who seemed to be the leader. "'Yes, with its escort,' said one of the watchers. "'How many men are there in the escort?' Twelve. "'I heard there were twenty. Twelve or twenty. Let's kill them all. "'Wait till they're within range.' A short time later, the wagon and its escort appeared at a bend in the road. "'Long live the king!' cried the peasant leader. A hundred muskets were fired at once. When the smoke cleared, the escort was scattered. Seven riders had fallen, and five had fled. The peasants ran up to the wagon. "'Look! It's not the guillotine!' exclaimed the leader. "'It's a ladder!' A long ladder was indeed all that the wagon carried. The two horses had fallen, wounded. The driver had been killed, but not intentionally. "'Even so, a ladder with an escort looks suspicious,' said the leader. "'It was going toward Parigny. It was probably going to be used in the attack on the Torg.' "'Let's burn it,' cried the peasants. And they burned the ladder." As for the funereal wagon they had been awaiting, it was moving along another road, and was already two leagues further on, in the village where Michel Flechard had seen it pass at sunrise. After leaving the three children to whom she had given her buckwheat cake, Michel Flechard had begun wandering at random through the woods. Since no one would point out the way to her, she would have to find it herself. She occasionally sat down, then stood up, then sat down again. She had that dire fatigue which begins in the muscles and finally goes into the bones. It is the fatigue of a slave. She actually was a slave, a slave to her lost children. She had to find them. Each moment that passed might mean losing them forever. Anyone who has a duty like hers no longer has any rights. Stopping to catch her breath was forbidden to her. But she was very weary. At that stage of exhaustion, each new step is a question. Can I make it? She had been walking since morning. She had not come to another village or even a house. She first took the right path, then the wrong one, and she finally became lost among branches that were all alike. Was she approaching her goal? Was she nearing the end of her passion? She was in the Via Dolorosa, and she felt the prostration of the last station. Was she going to fall to the ground and expire there? There was a moment when going any further seemed impossible to her. The sun was going down, the forest was dark, the path was vanishing beneath the grass, and she no longer knew what to do. She had nothing left but God. She began to call out. No one answered. She looked around, saw an opening in the branches, walked toward it, and suddenly found herself out of the woods. Before her was a little valley, as straight as a trench, at the bottom of which a clear stream ran over the stones. She now realized that she had a burning thirst. She went down to the stream, knelt, and drank. She remained kneeling to say her prayers. When she stood up, she tried to get her bearings. She stepped over the stream. Behind the little valley, as far as the eye could see, stretched a vast plateau covered with short bushes. Starting from the stream, it sloped upward and filled the whole horizon. The forest had been a solitude. This plateau was a desert. In the forest she might have met someone behind any bush. On the plateau, as far as her gaze could reach, she saw nothing. A few birds which seemed to be fleeing were flying over the heather. Then, in the presence of that immense abandonment, feeling her knees give way beneath her, and as if she had lost her reason, the frantic mother cast this strange cry into the solitude. Is there anyone here? And she waited for an answer. An answer came. 
a deep voice burst from the horizon and reverberated from one echo to another. It sounded like a clap of thunder or a cannon shot, and it seemed that this voice answered her question and said, Yes. Then there was silence. She straightened up, reinvigorated. Someone was there. It now seemed to her that she had someone to talk to. She had just drunk and prayed. Her strength was coming back to her. She began walking up the plateau in the direction from which she had heard the enormous faraway voice. Suddenly she saw a high tower rising from the edge of the horizon. It was all alone in that wild landscape. A ray from the setting sun turned it crimson. It was more than a league away. Behind it, fading into the mist, was a great mass of diffuse verdure, which was the Fougere forest. It seemed to her that the tower lay in the direction from which she had heard the roar that had seemed to be an answer. Was it the tower that had made that sound? She had reached the top of the plateau. Before her was the plain. She walked toward the tower. The time had come. The inexorable held the merciless. Simordan had Lantanac in his hand. The old royalist rebel had been caught in his lair. It was obvious that he could not escape, and Simordan intended to have him beheaded there, on his own land, and, in a sense, in his own house, so that the feudal residents would see the head of the feudal lord fall, thus making the example a memorable one. That was why he had sent to Fougere for the guillotine. We have just seen it on the way. To kill Lantanac was to kill Vendée. To kill Vendée was to save France. Simordan did not hesitate. He was at ease in the ferocity of duty. The Marquis appeared to be lost. Simordan was not worried about that, but he was worried about something else. The fighting was surely going to be terrible. Gauvin would direct it, and might also want to take part in it. That young officer was also a soldier. He was quite capable of throwing himself into the fray. If only he were not killed. Gauvin, his child, the only affection he had on earth. Gauvin had had good luck so far, but luck eventually runs out. Simordan trembled. It was his strange destiny to be between two Gauvins, wishing death to one and life to the other. The cannon shot which had roused Georgette in her crib and called her mother from the depths of the solitude had done more than that. Whether by chance or from the intention of the gunner, even though it was only a warning shot, the cannonball had struck the iron grill that covered the big loophole on the second floor of the tower, made a hole in it, and half torn it away. The defenders had not had time to repair this damage. The defenders had been boastful. They had very little ammunition. Their situation, let us stress the point, was even more critical than the attackers thought. If they had had enough gunpowder, they would have blown up the Torg with themselves and their enemies inside it. That was their dream. But all their reserves were exhausted. They had no more than thirty shots per man left. They had many muskets, blunderbusses, and pistols, but few cartridges. They had loaded all their guns so that they could keep up a continuous fire, but how long would that fire last? They would have to maintain it and prolong it. That was the difficulty. Fortunately, a sinister good fortune, the fighting would be mostly man-to-man, with sabers and daggers. There would be more grappling than shooting. The opponents would cut one another to pieces. That was the defender's hope. The interior of the tower seemed impregnable. In the low room where the breach entered, it was blocked by the Rhetorade, a barricade skillfully built by Lantanac. Behind the Rhetorade was a long table covered with loaded guns, blunderbusses, carbines, and muskets, and sabers, axes, and daggers. 
Unable to use the dungeon to blow up the tower, the Marquis had given orders to lock the door that connected it with the lower room. Above the lower room was the round room of the second floor, which could be reached only by way of a very narrow spiral staircase. Like the lower room, this room was furnished with a table, covered with weapons ready for use. It was lighted by the big loophole, whose grill had just been smashed by a cannonball. Above this room, the spiral staircases led to the round room on the third floor, containing the iron door that gave access to the building on the bridge. This room was called either the iron door room or the mirror room, because of the many little mirrors hanging against the bare stone from old rusty nails. A strange attempt at elegance mingled with all that savagery. Since the upper rooms could not be advantageously defended, this mirror room was what Manasson Mallet, the legislator of fortresses, calls the last post where the besieged surrender. As we have already seen, the defenders were determined to prevent the attackers from reaching that room. Although this round room on the third floor was lighted by loopholes, a torch was burning in it. This torch, in an iron holder like the one in the lower room, had been lit by Imanus, who had placed the end of the fuse beside it. Horrible preparations. On one side of the lower room there was food spread out on a long table, as in a Homeric cavern. There were big dishes of rice, boiled buckwheat, minced veal, a paste made of flour and boiled fruit, and jugs of cider. Anyone who wanted to eat and drink could do so. The cannon shot put them on the alert. They now had only half an hour left. Imanus was watching the approach of the attackers from the top of the tower. Lantanac had ordered his men not to fire at them as they advanced. He had said, There are forty-five hundred of them. It would be useless to kill any of them outside. We'll kill only inside. Inside, equality will be established. And he had added, laughing, Equality, fraternity. It had been agreed that Imanus would sound a warning with his hunting horn when the enemy began their movement. The men all waited in silence behind the rhetorade or on the stairs, with one hand on their muskets and the other on their rosaries. The situation had become precise and was as follows. For the attackers, a breach to mount, a barricade to force, three superposed rooms to take one after another by force of arms, and two spiral staircases to capture step by step beneath a hail of bullets. For the defenders, to die. Gauvin, meanwhile, was putting the attack in order. He gave his final instructions to Simordan, who, it will be recalled, was to guard the plateau without taking part in the action, and to Gaechamp, who was to remain on the lookout with the main body of the army in the forest camp. It was understood that neither the lower battery in the woods nor the upper battery on the plateau would fire unless there was a sortie or an attempt to escape. Gauvin had reserved for himself the command of the group that would storm the breach. This was what troubled Simordan. The sun had just set. A tower in open country is like a ship on the high seas. It must be attacked in the same way. It is a boarding rather than an assault. No cannons, nothing useless. What would be the use of cannonading walls fifteen feet thick? A hole in the side, men forcing it on one side and blocking it on the other. Axes, knives, pistols, fists, and teeth. Such is the undertaking. Gauvin felt that there was no other way of taking the Torg. Nothing is more murderous than an attack in which each side sees the whites of the other's eyes. He knew the formidable interior of the tower, since he had lived there as a child. He thought deeply. In the meantime, a few paces away from him, Gaechamp, his second-in-command, was looking through a telescope at the horizon in the direction of Parigny. Suddenly he cried out, Ah, at last! 
This exclamation drew Gauvin from his reverie. What is it, Gaychamp? The ladder, sir. Here it comes. The ladder? Yes. What? Don't we have it yet? No, sir. And I was worried. The messenger I sent to Javanet came back. I know. He said he'd found a ladder of the right size in the carpenter shop at Javanet, that he'd requisitioned it, that he'd had it put on a wagon, that he'd requisitioned an escort of twelve men on horseback, and that he'd seen the wagon, the ladder, and the escort leave for Parigny. He'd then come back at full speed. And he gave us that report. And he added that since the wagon had good horses, and had left at about two o'clock in the morning, it would be here before sunset. I know all that. Well? Well, sir, the sun has just set, and the wagon bringing the ladder hasn't arrived yet. Is that possible? But we must attack. The time has come. If we delay, the enemy will think we're reluctant to attack. We can attack, sir. But the ladder is necessary. No doubt. But we don't have it. Yes, we do. What? That's what made me say, at last. The wagon hasn't arrived. I took my telescope and looked over the road from Parigny to the Torg, and I was glad to see that the wagon is there, with the escort. It's coming down a hill. You can see it. Gauvin took the telescope and looked. Yes, there it is. There's not enough daylight left to make out everything, but I can see the escort clearly. However, the escort seems to be more numerous than you said, Gaychamp. Yes, it does, sir. They're about a quarter of a league away. Sir, the latter will be here in a quarter of an hour. We can attack. A wagon was indeed on its way toward them, but it was not the one they thought. When he turned around, Gauvin saw Sergeant Radoub standing at attention behind him, with eyes lowered. What is it, Sergeant Radoub? Citizen Commander, we, the men of the Red Bonnet Battalion, have a favor to ask of you. What is it? To have us killed. Ah, said Gauvin. Will you do us that favor? But that depends, said Gauvin. Sir, since the fight at Dole, you've been sparing us. There are still twelve of us. Well, it humiliates us. You're the reserve. We'd rather be the vanguard. But I need you to make sure of success at the end of an action. I'm saving you. Too much. It doesn't matter. You march with the rest of the column. At the rear. Paris has a right to march in front. I'll think about it, Sergeant Radoub. Think about it today, sir. This is a good chance. There's going to be some hard fighting. The Torg will burn the fingers of those who touch it. We're asking the favor of being among them. The sergeant paused, twisted his mustache, and then went on in a faltering voice. And then, sir, our children are in that tower. The children of the battalion are there, our three children. That miserable scoundrel, Brise Bleu, that Imanus, that Gouge le Bruant, that Bouge le Gruant, that Fouge le Truant, that goddamned son of the devil, is threatening our children. Our children, sir. No matter what happens, we won't let them be hurt. Do you hear that, sir? We won't have it. This afternoon, since we weren't fighting, I went up on the plateau and looked at them through a window. Yes, they're really there. I could see them from the edge of the ravine, and I scared them, the little darlings. Sir, if anything happens to one hair on their angelic heads, I swear by everything that's sacred that I, Sergeant Radoub, will get even with the Eternal Father for it. And here's what the battalion says. We want the children to be saved, or else we all want to be killed. That's our right. Yes. All of us killed. That's all I have to say, sir. Gauvin held out his hand to Radoub and said, You're brave men. You'll be included in the attacking force. I'll divide you into two groups. I'll put six of you in the vanguard, 
so that everyone will go forward, and six of you in the rear, so that no one will retreat. Am I still in command of the twelve? Of course. Then I thank you, sir, because I'll be in the vanguard. Radub saluted and went back to his men. Govan took out his watch, spoke a few words in Gaishamp's ear, and the attacking force began to form. Meanwhile, Simordan, who had not yet gone to his post on the plateau, and who had been beside Govan, went up to a bugler. "'Sound a signal to the tower,' he said. The bugle sounded. The hunting horn replied. There was another exchange between the bugle and the horn. "'What's that?' Govan said to Gaishamp. "'What does Simordan want?' Simordan had walked toward the tower with a white handkerchief in his hand. He raised his voice. "'Men who are in the tower, do you know me?' A voice, Imanus's voice, replied from the top of the tower, "'Yes.' The two voices then spoke to each other, and this dialogue was heard. "'I'm an agent of the Republic.' You're the former parish priest of Parigny. I'm a delegate of the Committee of Public Safety. You're a priest. I'm a representative of the law. You're a renegade. I'm an emissary of the revolution. You're an apostate. I'm Simordan. You're the devil. Do you know me? We hate you. Would you like to have me in your power? There are eighteen of us here who would give our heads to have yours. Well, I've come to give myself up to you. From the top of the tower came a savage laugh, and this cry, Come! A deep, expectant silence fell over the camp. On one condition, said Simordan. What is it? Listen. Talk. You hate me? Yes. I love you. I'm your brother. Yes, Cain, replied the voice from the top of the tower. Simordan spoke in a singular tone that was both loud and gentle. Insult me if you wish, but listen. I've come here to discuss terms. Yes, you're my brothers. You're poor, misguided men. I'm your friend. I'm a ray of light, and I'm speaking to ignorance. Light always contains brotherhood. Besides, don't we all have the same mother, our country? Well, then, listen to me. You'll know later, or your children will know, or your children's children will know, that everything that's being done now is taking place in accordance with laws from on high, and that the revolution is the work of God. Until the time when all minds, even yours, will understand, when all fanaticism, even ours, will vanish, and when that great light will appear, will no one take pity on your darkness? I come to you and offer you my head. I do more. I hold out my hand to you. I ask you to do me the favor of destroying me in order to save yourselves. I have full powers, and I can do what I say. This is a supreme moment. I'm making a last effort. Yes, the man who's speaking to you is a citizen. And in that citizen, yes, there's a priest. The citizen fights you, but the priest implores you. Listen to me. Many of you have wives and children. I'm trying to defend your wives and children. I'm trying to defend them against you. Oh, my brothers, go on, preach, sneered Imanus. Simordan continued. My brothers, don't let the abominable hour strike. A massacre is about to take place. Many of us who are now here before you will not see the sunrise tomorrow. Yes, many of us will perish, and you, all of you, will die. Have mercy on yourselves. Why shed all that blood when it's useless? Why kill so many men when two are enough? Two, said Imanus. Yes, two. Who are they? 
Lantanac, and I. And Simordan raised his voice. Two deaths are desired. Lantanac's by us, mine by you. Here's what I offer you, and your lives will be saved. Give us Lantanac, and take me. Lantanac will be guillotined, and you can do whatever you like with me. Priest, shouted Imanus, if we had you, we'd roast you over a slow fire. I consent, said Simordan, and he went on. You, the doomed men who are in the tower, can all be alive and free an hour from now. I'm bringing you salvation. Will you accept it? You're not only a scoundrel, you're a madman, cried Imanus. Why have you come to disturb us? Who asked you to come and talk to us? You expected us to hand over our lord? What do you want? His head, and I offer you your skin, because we'd flay you like a dog, Simordan the priest. But we refuse. Your skin isn't worth his head. Go away. The fighting will be horrible. For the last time, think it over. Night had fallen while these somber words, which could be heard inside and outside the tower, were being exchanged. The Marquis de Lantanac remained silent and allowed events to take their course. Leaders often display that kind of sinister selfishness. It is one of the rights of responsibility. Imanus directed his voice beyond Simordan and cried out, Men who are besieging us, you've heard our terms. We've stated them, and we won't change them. If you refuse them, the consequences will be terrible. Will you accept them? We'll give you the three children who are here, if you'll let us all leave the tower free and alive. Yes, all of you except one, replied Simordan. Which one? Lantanac. Our lord, you want us to surrender our lord? Never. We must have Lantanac. Never. We can treat with you only on that condition. Then begin your attack. There was silence. After sounding the signal on his horn, Imanus went down from the top of the tower. The Marquis took his sword in his hand. The nineteen defenders silently grouped themselves behind the rhetoric in the lower room and knelt. They heard the measured tread of the attacking force moving toward the tower in the darkness. The sound came closer, then suddenly they felt it quite near them, at the very entrance of the breach. Still kneeling, they aimed their muskets and blunderbusses through the slits in the rhetoric, and one of them, Grand Francoeur, who was the priest Termeau, stood up, and with a drawn sword in his right hand and a crucifix in his left, said in a solemn tone, In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. They all fired at once, and the battle began. <laughs>